Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a supporter of the show. It is quite necessary, actually, for it to stay on the air. So please, 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 if you're enjoying the show or get something out of it, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a supporter for any amount you can. And now for our guest today, we're going to be talking about something that seems quite different, but actually isn't. Today on the show, we have someone who's very special to my family. Nat Gertler. He is the writer of dozens of books, the publisher of the About Comics line, and a professional Peanuts nerd. He has written over a hundred comic book stories and has twice been nominated for Comicdom's Eisner Award. He has blogged about Peanuts at blog.og.com. That's A-A-U-G-H. For 20 years, did 60 episodes of a Peanuts podcast, and his books about Peanuts include the Ben Franklin award-winning The Snoopy Treasures and the upcoming self-help gift book, Be More Snoopy. Oh, I think we all should be. When he's not out saving the world, which is always, he can be found in his California home with his wife, Dr. Lara Gertler, and their two wonderful kids. Here's Nat now. So today on the show, I'm so happy to have Nat Gertler on. He's a special person to my family and also has done some very, very cool things. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do as part of the work that you do and part of the reason that we're going to be talking today. Okay, well, I um, have a few hats that I wear. I'm a writer and I'm a publisher. And we tell people that you're a writer and publisher, they think you're writing your own little uh, romantic fictions and publishing yourselves, but I'm actually a writer for other publishers and a publisher of other people's work. And I'm also a professional peanuts nerd. So I'm sort of a specialist in the works of Charles M. Schultz, Snoopy, Charlie Brown, that gang. Yeah. And so I'm hoping as people listen to this, they won't just hear me sounding like wah, 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 because that's (laughs) always my goal. Uh, (laughs) uh, Anyway, so keep going, though. Besides the Peanuts nerd, tell us a little bit more about what you do. Well, as a publisher, I have a company called About Comics. And that started to do things related to the comic book and comic strip field. There's a lot of reprinting of uh, old materials, did some how to write comics guides, things like that. And after a while, I expanded that. I started reprinting some novels of some people whose work I liked that had been out of print for a fair while. And I started reprinting some historical materials. Some of them were things like Captain Billy's Whizbang, which is a humor magazine from, from the 1920s. It's just to show people what the humor was like then. But a few years back, uh, 2016 to be precise, I started looking into reprinting something called the Negro Motorist Green Book, which uh, more people have heard of now. It's a travel guide for African-Americans that was published during the Jim Crow era from the 1930s into the 1960s. 
And that was just supposed to be some little thing I did, maybe sell a few to museum gift shops. But it turned out to be very, very popular and is actually our the biggest part of the About Comics publishing these days, uh, which is a bit strange for a company called About Comics, but this happened. When we talk about indoctrination, you know, I usually will kind of use it in the negative, but I know that what we're talking about is influence. And we're talking about people who have certain ideas provided for them through the media, through comics, archetypes, you know, the whole Charlie Brown that so many kids can relate to that character and that we feel represented. And I know a lot of cultures have not felt represented, which I want to be able to come back to. But if you can let me know, because I think there's so much about the sort of natural indoctrination that went into even just needing a Negro motorist green book. Like, what is it about our culture that makes us get to a point where we need something like this? Uh, and also, what was your particular interest in it? Well, the Negro Motors Green Book was obviously caused by the vast amount of discrimination that was going on in this country. Most hotels, many restaurants, things like that wouldn't take the Black customer, which comes from an attitude that people are often taught that they're somehow better they, in needing to feel good about themselves or powerful about themselves is often handy to have somebody they feel better than. And I think an awful lot of that goes into why we tolerated a basic racist assumption in this country for so long, that if you can feel better than, than, than somebody, people can do horrible things to you as long as they tell you, but you're better than that guy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can certainly right. see, see that going on there. The Green Book had some very positive indoctrination effects, I thought, uh, even at the time, as best as I can tell, in that it showed Black entrepreneurs that there was opportunity. Uh, obviously, there were always, always a lot of Black businessmen, uh, whenever they, they, there could be, and they opened up businesses. But if you were considering opening a business, say, you could look at this book and you could say, oh, look, here in this area, there are a lot of Black businesses Maybe there's an opportunity for me there. Or you could look at a place and say, there's, a, there's no, you know, look at the 1940 edition of the Green Book and you see that there are no hotels taking black people listed in New Mexico. And obviously people needed to travel through New Mexico at times. And that might be seen as opportunity. So there could be a lot of influence of it from when it was around. What I have found interesting, and this is something that I have more direct experience of, I was not alive during the Jim Crow era, and obviously I am not a person of color. But what I found interesting is that when I started giving these to people, when I started showing these to people who had never seen them, it was like a light bulb went off over their head. By showing them this very practical item, they realized how necessary it was. It, it suddenly it told a tale that they'd heard, they heard a lot of people talk about the abstract of how there was racism and separation but sometimes bringing things down to something very practical mm-hmm. really makes it make, I don't want to say the racism makes sense, but they understood what was going on a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I think if you do need to have a travel guide, if you do need to find uh, or help people sort of find their way through a maze in order to keep themselves safe, mm-hmm. uh, then yes, it does paint a picture. I remember there was a minute that um, that when I was married, we were going to be moving to, an area in it, 
in Atlanta or just outside of Atlanta. And I remember being told by the people there, yeah, well, you know, I mean, there, Atlanta does have a, a good Jewish history, but our suggestion is that you want to kind of stay within this area. And I thought, no, I know. I don't know if I want to do that. And I don't want to be so close to this border where I have to worry. But that has been the situation for many people uh, for many years. And so it grew out of helping people stay safe, right, which does paint a picture about how it was not, it was not only just not safe, but it could be deadly. Right. Whenever you say, see somebody saying this is a comfort zone, what they're telling you is every place else is not a comfort zone. Uh, and this has been done for plenty of groups. Uh, before there were the, the Negro Motors Green Book, there were similar guides for Jewish travelers. It was mostly, it usually used to promote welcoming hotels and, and, and uh, summer vacation spots and things like that. But nonetheless, it, it was, it showed the assumption that not every place was for you. And in later years, we would see travel guides for uh, gay tourists, things like that. So uh, plenty of groups have had to have their safe zones defined for them. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that, that is beyond what I knew going into my conversation with you. That's why I love talking with you. And do you know what these books were called? Or was it a similar sort of thing, this travel guide for the Jewish traveler? Or I have never actually seen a copy of one of the Jewish guides. We do know that to a certain degree, uh, Victor Green, the guy who created the Green Book, uh -huh. it's, he named it for himself and colored it green, so you can take it either way. He w took some inspiration fr from those Jewish guides, but I have not seen them. I'm afraid I'm not as much of an expert on them as I would like to be. I would love to get copies of a few of them, reprint them if possible. That would be great. So if anyone's listening and you happen to have a copy, <laughs> uh, let us know. So this person who published this, the Greens, and his wife as well, because I've seen her name in, in some of the articles, Alma? Alma, yes, yes. Uh, she, she became particularly involved after he passed in some of his later years. She was listed more in the masthead. I don't know the details of, of all what went on. They didn't have any children to carry it on. And after he passed, Alma was involved for a bit of a while, and then some other hands took over for its last few years. But Victor Green was a mailman. He he lived in Harlem and delivered mail in Hackensack, New Jersey. Okay. And that proved to be a very useful thing for doing a guide like this, in that mailmen get to see what's going on, get to know what the addresses are, where things are done, where things aren't done. And Black mailmen had an organization. So when he was looking to find out information for the book, this these books are effectively crowdsourced. Anybody could send in information about, oh, wait, here's a hotel you guys didn't know about. We just opened a restaurant. You should list us. And Victor would gladly take that information and also say, hey, you want to buy a, an ad in the listing? They, they were, it's a commercial enterprise. But it was a crowdsourced item, and mailmen uh, were very vital toward getting that information. It's incredible. And yes, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I never thought about it. Okay. And so then back to this idea of what draws you into something like that. And I know we're going to talk about some other subjects, but I'm wondering what spoke to you about something like this, where you pursued it to the degree that you pursued it. And I want people also to be able to, to check it out. But what drove you? Well, I read a, an article or two or heard a podcast about the Green Book, which got me very curious. and. I 
got personally interested in part because I have a stepmother who is half African-American, half Cherokee, dear, dear woman, Pocahontas Gertler, not a name that growing up I expected to end up in the family, mm -hmm. but she's a wonderful person. And she would tell tales about when she was traveling as a high school athlete and how she was the only person of color on the uh, team. So they would drop everybody else off within at a hotel within the city to stay before a meet and have to drive her someplace else where they, obviously this was, I found this horrifying, but I also found it fascinating because I saw that there's a whole set of procedures that needed to be done. It's a complication to life that came with the system to a certain degree. Right. And so I got curious about the Green Book and figured I'd grab up a copy and see what they're like. And then I discovered that Green Books, uh, they, they're not around very much anymore. When you find one, they're a museum piece and you expect to pay tens of thousands of dollars for one, which I found both frustrating and as a businessman, an opportunity. I couldn't be the only person out there who was curious to see one. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and lucky for me, the Schoenberg Center for Research on Black Culture had copies of all of them oh. and had been scanning them. And so I managed to reprint them. I mean, I, I think it's amazing also, and I want you to mention again the name of the place that had them, this, this museum. The, uh, the Schoenberg Center for Research on Black Culture is part of the New York Public Library System. So uh, it's, a, it's a specialty place that they have for, for focus on that material. It's funded in order to have a lot of background on Black culture. And obviously, this is part of it. And um, they it actually turned out around nicely. We, we scanned their copies and turned around and sold them copies of our copies to sell in the uh, museum store. We've also donated a, a, a big pile of copies and some money to the Schoenberg Center because it's important work they're doing. I think it's so good. When people start museums like that, they might not realize the exponential kind of impact they're going to be having when they become a storehouse for information, when they collect things that they think there might not be an interest in again, and you never know. And, and whether or not there's ever a need for a green book again, and I hope there's never a need for it again, still, it is historical document and i'm sure it just it leaves you with a certain feeling about a different time about a different time but a lot of reaction especially given recent events is that there might need to be a need for something like it again now whenever people say that to me you know not so much that there's legal restrictions on where black people can go but there may be safety limitations and i always have to point out that it wouldn't be a green book today it would be an app <sighs> Uh, it, would, it would know where you are and be able to point you to the nearest place of, of comfort. That's true. Okay. Okay. So thank you. And, and so please, where can people find your revised, your, you know, your updated version? They're not, not revised. I call them facsimile editions. I try to make them look, look as, as much like the original as possible to, with certain limitations on, on my printing methods. But you can order them through Amazon.com. And also I have one book that collects four different ones of the green books into a single volume, what I call the Negro Motorist Green Book Compendium. That is, it also reproduces them larger, a little easier on some aging eyes. You can order that from any independent bookstore or currently the Smithsonian Online for the Smithsonian Museums is carrying that as well. All right, thank you. Thank you. Now, so shifting gears just a bit. Okay. 
because I say just a bit because there is uh, a, a thread here. So I saw that you had posted an announcement of your friend's passing, your friend Harriet Glickman, who is a very significant woman who did something and probably a lot of things that were significant that unfortunately, which is true for a lot of people who do significant things that people hadn't really heard of. Uh, the general population might not have heard of her in a way that they really could have and should have. And so I learned about her actually through you. And so I would love for you to be able to to talk about her, talk about what your connection was to her, what she did, and kind of honor her in this way. Yes. Well, Harriet Glickman was a lovely woman. Um, she had been a teacher and she was at basically pretty much a housewife and taking care of, of her kids. And in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, she was concerned about the way the country was going and felt that we needed to have more racial comfort and integration. And she reached out to a couple of comic strip creators, asking if maybe they could add some black faces to their normally all white comic strips. And one of the people just said, no, really can't do that, wouldn't be comfortable. And the other one was Charles Schultz, creator of Penis. And he was really uncertain about this idea. He thought that it might be seen from black folks as pandering and was very, he was very cautious. He was a conservative person by nature. Uh, he moved carefully, but he had responded to Harriet and Harriet got together some black friends who also wrote to him about this with their thoughts and input. And not that long later, he sent her a note saying, check out the, the peanut strip up, upcoming on a specific date. And there introduced Franklin, the first African-American character of the Peanuts cast. And Franklin has been around for a long time, appeared regularly through the strip and continues to appear in the Peanuts tie-in materials they're doing. Uh, he was a mellow individual. There wasn't much made in the strip specifically talking about his race. It's just his presence there as a friend of Charlie Brown's had a, had a real impact. And it wasn't the first integrated comic strip, but it was by far the biggest one. Peanuts was a huge thing. And most of the other ones that regularly mix black characters and white characters in their cast were specialty little things where that was perhaps the goal was to be a be racially integrated comic strip. Mm -hmm. So the Peanuts doing this had, had a big impact. And Harriet got to know that she had that impact for, for a long while. Uh, she went on to a career uh, working on getting grants for charities, if I recall correctly. Then at some point, somebody steered me towards her. I wrote a couple articles about her. I, I wrote a, an article for a magazine called Hogan's Alley about her and also included her in a book about peanuts I was doing called The Peanuts Collection, where we covered a lot of topics. Mm -hmm. And she became known. We got that story out there, which I think is a very good story because it wasn't a huge effort. It was a few letters and talking to a few people mm -hmm. about something she cared about. And it had a very large impact. Right. You know, the idea also of having having people represented. So I know with the Peanuts characters, there are many different kinds of personality types that are represented that I'd like you to be able to talk about. But it's reminding me, I recently saw pictures of a Black family who was living in the South in the 1950s. 
And the little girl had a doll that was white. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, right. I mean, how often could you go into a toy store or any kind of doll store or place to get things where you're going to have different skin tones and you're going to have a different style to it rather than kind of what was typical or what sells. And it's similar now to a picture that I posted about a year ago on Facebook with a boy who uh, is in a wheelchair who was in Target, who was looking up at a poster of a boy in a wheelchair and he, uh, who was selling some sort of clothing or modeling some clothing, but in, sitting in a wheelchair and how, how important it was to feel yourself represented. And also that for other kids who are not in wheelchairs, what that does to normalize the view. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering about all the different archetypes, all the different characters and peanuts and others where you think it has done that, where it's made people feel represented. And it's also shifted kind of a negative indoctrination for people. Yes. Well, I've been thinking about the peanuts types a lot lately, A, because I always think about peanuts. I am, as I said, a professional peanuts nerd, but also B, I recently wrote a book called Be More Snoopy, which is a little upbeat, self-help, inspirational guide. Uh, just a fun little thing, not deep psychology, just just a bit of encouragement for, for how to approach the world. And so you can see that there are, are some Peanuts characters who are very quiet and proper, like Marcy. Uh, you have some who are very loud and, and aggressive and want the world steered towards them, like Lucy. Uh, you have people who basically build their own worlds and live in them, like Snoopy. Um, he he's constantly living in his, his imagination, whether he's being the World War One flying ace or a golf pro or a Joe Motocross or Joe Cool or many of the other characters he, he played in his mind. And it doesn't make his world perfect. In fact, it's one of the curious things about Snoopy's imagination. He can picture himself as the World War One flying ace, but every time he does, he gets shot down. So he still has that little bit of self-destruction in him that perhaps we all have in ourselves in some way. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so we have Charlie Brown, who who is uh, wishy-washy, very unsure of himself, and everybody else reflects his unsureness about himself back at him. Mm-hmm. They're willing to encourage him to be very uncertain about himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Franklin was more of a listener. He was a, he was a kindly guy. He was an outsider at first. He he came into the neighborhood from elsewhere, and so he was very attentive and supportive. Mm-hmm. And it, it everybody had their own their own things they carry with them. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And so I I really like also that uh, that characters don't at all have to be near perfect. They just have to can be things that people and characters that people can relate to. And, and also that I think because of the population, I work with a lot of people who have been in very controlled environments where they haven't been able to know who they are uh, and they haven't been able to really come forward in their lives yet and emerge. And they're still learning ways to do that as adults. Um, I think it helps to be able to see that there isn't one right way to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that you can find many different ways and you can find also that I think with, uh, with also a lot of characters and archetypes, we are those things at different times in our lives. 
and also in different environments. So they can also represent all of us or they all represent us. Yes, and I think we, we connect ourselves with characters more often in their weaknesses than in their strengths. Hmm. Not always true. There's certainly times, um, I had a bit of an odd path to education. I started college at 14. And when there was a TV show called Doogie Howser about a guy who became a doctor when he was uh, 16 or something like that, I don't remember the exact, exact age, even though that wasn't exactly my path, there was that sense of, okay, here's somebody who is accelerated. And I, I sort of connected with that aspect of it. But more often, I think I connect with it, like Charlie Brown's sense of uncertainty and loserdom. Uh, I, you know, I connect with Schroeder's frustration of trying to concentrate on his music when somebody wants to distract him, like Lucy coming along and, and being all romantic. Uh, so it, it, uh, the struggles are more what I connect with. I connect more with Spider-Man than with Superman. Superman is strong and perfect. And unless somebody has a glowing green rock with them, he can pretty much get away with anything. Spider-Man is a teenager who is never quite sure what to do. He's very strong. He's very powerful. He's got a lot, of, a lot of, of ability to him. But he can be emotionally undercut extremely easily. Uh, and I think that's part of why Spider-Man is, of the moment, a bit more popular than Superman in the culture. Right. Okay. So then, shifting, because this was a perfect segue, thank you, Nat, for uh, talking about the next subject, which I wanted to be able to bring up, um, it, I went to an exhibit a number of years ago on comic books that dealt with World War II and World War II era international conflict. And that there were a lot of comic books and heroes that were fighting the Nazis, which a lot of people don't realize, you know, at the time. And so there was a book, I believe, that came out in 2017 that compiled a lot of this anti-Nazi books and the, the comic strips, I think it was called Take That, Adolf. And that I remember hearing also that uh, there was a little nervousness about talking about Hitler in one of the comic strips or one of the earlier ones. So they changed it to Hiller instead of Hitler. And then they just went with Hitler after a while. And so it seemed like it was this way, this very satisfying way of being able to kind of punch out the bad guys or get justice or deal with the hurt or the fear. Also knowing if your family or people you know have been harmed or killed, this is a way to get back if, you know, in small or in big ways. And so I was curious about that, using that, that medium as a way to get justice or to satisfy the, not only the, the reader, but the producer of it, the artist, in so many, I think, healing ways. Yeah, well, comic books are very easy to connect with. They, they are very visual, but they go at the pace you choose. If you're sitting in a movie, you may... Certainly, I find for a lot of movies, for example, action films, a lot of them these days, they jump in around so quickly, I can't follow what's going on. Right. But with a comic book, you get the visual, you get your own pacing, and it's very comfortable and allows you to sort of fall into the work. You bring the work into you. And so th that, that helps a lot. Now, when it comes to World War II, one of the things that it helps to remember is that comic books were fighting Hitler before America was. 
there were, a, uh, the first issue of Captain America came before Pearl Harbor did. And on the cover, you see Captain America punching Hitler. And Captain America was created by a pair of Jews, uh, Simon and Kirby, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, as were most of the comic books of the day. The Jews were very big in, in the comics industry in its early days, through the 60s. And there are reasons for that. A lot, a lot of having to do with other publishing outlets not being so open to Jews. Um, so, but it's not surprising that the Jewish folks came and were worried about Hitler before everybody else and wanted to be able to show victory was possible. Here, we can punch this guy. We can punch the Nazi. And I'm sure that Jack Kirby, uh, the co-creator, and who would go on to co-create such things as the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, the Incredible Hulk, the Silver Surfer, uh, a large portion of what you see on the big screen these days, he was always made it very clear he was in favor of punching Nazis. Whether they're on the, in, on, the, on the comics or in the neighborhood. So I, I'm not surprised that he took that as both a release and an advertisement to everybody else that we can beat these guys and we should beat these guys. Okay. Creators of Superman, also a, a pair of Jews. And a lot of people find in that his sort of hidden identity aspect that everybody thinks he's this nebbish Clark Kent, but inside he's, he's, he's wonderful. Um, although I do, do sometimes wonder what would happen. Superman first appeared in 1936, before okay. people were really paying attention to what was going on in Europe. Okay, yeah. And I wonder what would happen if he'd started a few years later, because the Nazis had their concept that they were telling everybody of the Ubermensch, of the Superman, Mm-hmm. And even the very first version of Superman that um, Siegel and Schuster did, folks who created it, was a bad guy. They'd written a, a, a science fiction story with a, an evil overlord named Superman. And had they waited a few years, had they not gotten that publication in 1936, they could very well have created something very different, an evil, horrible Superman against which the little people were, were rising up. And that would have created a, a very different field. And that was, being that Superman is, is really the superhero around which everything else was created. We might yeah. see a very different sensibility today. So pe- people are carrying with them the moment, creating things in the moment, the works that reflect the moment. And they often make good reflections on what the moment was a long time later. And I think I've gotten far away from your question. I apologize. No, you really have not. But I want to open it back up to you because just as we're talking about how there are so many ways that people get messages, subtle and not so subtle messages, like punching a Nazi, pretty clear. But I think also uh, just in how people look or how people feel, like you were talking about Spider-Man, you get this sense of this a certain feeling mm-hmm. as opposed to just this sort of big, broad-shouldered dude. And so people could relate to what was behind the mask or, you know, being able to convey that kind of feeling or a hurt soul or a tortured soul, because that seems to be such a part of these characters. Well, in comics, makes it very easy to depict characters in a way that connects to you and also that don't. Uh, my friend Scott McCloud, who's the leading comic book theoretician, talks wow. about how the simplified drawing of faces, particularly in broad cartoons, look like the way we picture our face on the inside. When I'm smiling, I'm not seeing details of teeth and all this. I'm seeing the sort of this broad arc. And if I see a character 
with that sort of smile, a, a cartoon character with that sort of smile and open eyes, it connects to me directly. On the other hand, we can make character look very other. During a lot of the World War II stuff, they were not respectfully depicting our enemies. The Japanese in particular were drawn as something kind of human, kind of not, you know, which I understand where they're coming from at the moment. They, we want to create some, treat somebody as the enemy. You may want to treat them as less than, show them as less than human. In the longer run, in the bigger picture, obviously that, that, that's a very bad thing. But uh, so, com but comics give you that opportunity to to skew reality just enough that you can associate or disassociate from it. And and it's yeah. While you're talking, I'm thinking about still to this day all these caricatures, these horrible caricatures of people who uh, are vilified or um, blacks, Jews, whoever people mm -hmm. who uh, are are painted in such awful stereotypic way, but still beyond that uh, and what they're doing in the pictures and um, how they're just holding their body. And I think just sort of this menacing look or whatever else. And so I wonder how much of being able to do that, to turn that around was in some ways getting visual justice. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've reprinted a lot of, of older cartoons. Um, and the depiction of, say, African-Americans from before the 1950s, or actually even some of the 1950s stuff I've, I've reprinted, is not so much based in what African-Americans look like, but in some standard cartoon depiction of African-Americans that kept feeding back from cartoonist to cartoonist. Whether or not, it seemed, they really, they, they wish to depict them as something off-human, it still... They, they carried with them the comic shortcut for yeah. what African-American was. And some of these things are pretty horrible, which may, sometimes makes me uncomfortable in reprinting them. I'm trying to make sure they're seen as items of historical context and not, hey, this is amusing. <laughs> Look at those guys with, with infinite lips. Right. You hope that people understand mm -hmm. what that means about how people are viewed and also how there was a lack, not only of understanding, but sensitivity and kind of doing the right thing. Absolutely. And and then the, what we go through then is a phase of people trying to do it better. And especially in, in comics, we got we had a, a phase and there's a lot of characters introduced that we, we now know. And it's actually a small set of people who introduced them um, in terms of, say, African-American or African characters. For example, uh, Jack Kirby, the guy I was talking about before, Nazi puncher. And Stan Lee introduced the Black Panther. Stan Lee and Gene Colan introduced the Falcon, which is the character Howard Mackey plays in the Avengers movies. Gene Colan and Marv Wolfman introduced Blade, the vampire slayer, who has had three movies and a TV series of his own, another African-American character. And Marv Wolfman and George Perez introduced Cyborg, who is the African-American character that one sees in the Justice League of America movie that came out was a couple years back, probably now. Mm -hmm. So there's this thin line of people who are really trying to introduce and effectively introducing characters, uh, African-American characters. None of those people I mentioned are African-American. But eventually you start getting publishers who are interested in having actual, some authentic input, some actual voice. 
In the 1990s, there was a publisher called Milestone that was owned by four African-American men. And they didn't just do African-American comics. They didn't just have African-American creators. In fact, I did a little bit of writing for them. But they launched a whole bunch of books that got people exposed to them. They had one big success, one thing that went to television called Static. But after that, we started understanding that, yeah, people should be, to a certain degree, getting a chance to represent themselves. It's good to get give them representation. It's better to give them a chance to represent themselves. Okay, right. I'm wondering um, just about sort of forward thinking here. It, in terms of being able to make social change or more awareness, dealing with subjects in a way that can make them, I think, through this medium palatable in some way where it doesn't feel like you're getting a speech, but it kind of introduces certain characters and um, certain, I think, awareness and sensitivity. What would you like to see more represented as we move forward in, um, in comics? What do you think has not been touched on yet that should be? Well, there's an awful lot of things being touched on. We're actually in a very good time for that. We've got diverse creators uh, telling their own stories. And, you know, it, within within things like superhero comics, it, it ends up integrated into a, into a superhero universe. And sometimes I would think it'd be very interesting to have within the superhero realm some anti-violence, anti, not so comfortable with police aspects, somebody responding to the entire superhero idea that, you punch badness away, which I'm not saying is never valid, but it would be fun to see how can you approach what is normally solved in comics with a few, with, with a few punches with a careful conversation. Uh, it may not be a careful conversation. It may not be visual or, hey, I see this problem arising. There's a reason this problem arose. How do, we, how do I, maybe a retired superhero, get at the root cause rather than solving the immediate moment? And I find, the, I find aspects like that interesting. But in terms of personal stories, we've had a, a lot of good personal stories. One of the things we tend to get, though, is that when somebody starts into their personal realms, it's only about the problems. You know, a, a lot of the Black stories that get published, say, are about the difficulty of racism, which mm-hmm. is important and vital. And there's been some very fine things done. Yeah, But it also... Occasionally, you get a book like The Bakers, which is a cartoonist talking about the joy of his own family. And we tend to be slower to get to that. You know, the struggle mm-hmm. of being a lesbian or being trans or things like that come up a little quicker than just, hey, I'm trans and this is the rest of my life, of which this is part. That's true in any medium. Your, your first examples are either going to be extreme or so much focused on, well, I'm really not different than other people that you can barely tell that they're part of the group that, that that's being, is being discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I think there's, there's, there's definitely some more stories of, of simple comfort uh, and life going on in comics. But the default assumption that you always have to be starting with conflict tends to lend to putting these stories in in narrow context sometimes. It's very interesting, though, to think about how to represent a very clever conversation, uh, because it really should be, because being able to, you know, shoot someone or do whatever happens in comic books, and I think about cartoons, and I, I think about an anvil. And so there are all these ways that are very visual, 
but that if you were to teach conflict resolution and still make it interesting and still make it where it's the challenge of the cleverness, that would be so helpful just as a model for how to be in the world. That's so interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. And there actually are people trying to do little bits of that and been some, some interest, interesting and, and work that fun work that fun is important. If you do it and it seems like this is a lesson in right. conflict resolution, that's uh-huh. not going to be a very good comic. I'm not saying you can't do a, you can't have a, that as a goal, but especially if you're dealing in, in a pop realm, like a superhero realm, mm-hmm. you want to have some fun within that. Mm-hmm. And things like the series called Squirrel Girl, which sometimes leaned more towards that direction. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's an interesting creative challenge and it's something different and something different within the superhero realm is actually often very much embraced. So Nat, I want to thank you for taking us through this sort of historical journey of comic books, comic strips, where artists, writers in that genre have been able to make a difference and make statements. Mm-hmm. Some we agree with, some in retrospect we might not, but that they were symbolic of the time and the needs at the time to be able to have certain kinds of expression. And they also incorporate kind of a a lack of um, sensitivity or awareness that we might have now where we might approach it differently, but still just the amount of creativity and the amount of people also who were of a minority group who got involved because they were kept out of other professions. That fascinated me. I never realized that. But I for people who are interested to learn more, to explore more, where can they go? Well, I actually encourage them to go when they can safely uh, down to their local comic book store. There's many comic book stores around the country. Some of them are really just superhero stores and they have a lot of good stuff. And some of them have a broad expanse of materials and just look for yourself and see if there's something that catches your eye because there's serious work, there's very personal work, there's a lot of, of great graphic novels coming out, um, and, and there's still a lot of good superhero punch and mutants go, coming out. Uh, so I would really recommend that if they get a chance, go to a comic book store and take it all in and see, especially in the square bound materials, the book materials, what there might be, because there's material about how tough it is growing up to be a teen, uh, Renee Telgemeier has books that sell millions talking about things like what it was like being part of the drama scene at school and growing up or, or other mm-hmm. dealing with, with braces, right. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So if you go there, just look and find something that calls at you. Grab that up, find the thing for you. It may be, end up being great, it may, may not, but I can't, certainly can't tell you what's going to grab you got to find it for yourself thank you and and yes people avail themselves please of this of this resource because something that we often feel at different times in our lives is sort of terminally unique and and not in a good way when we're growing up and so knowing that there are whole books about it or comic strips about it just shows that it's not just you uh and it's that's always a nice message i think so thank you very much, Nan. And where can people find you and your work? And uh, I know that you're, you're kind of all over the place in terms of publishing uh, and making yourself available and your work available, which is incredible. So where can people find it? Okay, I'm going to have to list a few places. So I apologize for that. 
Go for it. If you want to see what I've been publishing, go to aboutcomics.com. If you want to see some of my, well, you want to see my comments on on the world. If you if I you think I've been saying interesting things, you can follow me at at Nat Gertler on on Twitter. If you're interested in the history of peanuts and you want to see what a professional peanuts nerd spews out, I have a blog that is dedicated to peanuts books and other books of the works of Charles M. Schultz, books about Charles M. Schultz, things like that. And I have been running that for about two decades now. And so that is aug.com, A-A-U-G-H.com. You'll find me, you'll find about 60 podcasts. I, I was podcasting for about a year and you find all sorts of, I, I find that when you take any topic and you look enough at details, you'll find something interesting. So hopefully if people go to that site They'll find me finding interesting things about the details of this particular geekiness of mine. Okay. Okay. Oh, right. And you can hear my mom talk on your podcast about the, right, the Peanuts yes. comic book she did in Braille. Yes. She she helped, your, your mother helped put together some Braille editions of Peanuts books in the 1960s. Uh, I did interview her for that. And you can find that somewhere in the podcast archives. Probably to do a search for Braille, it should show up. That's really exciting. Okay. I love how our families are are intertwined. Indeed. In so many ways. And so uh, lovely to talk to you and to learn from you. And yeah, I hope people check you out and check out your work. And thank you for for not only devoting yourself to something so interesting, but also such a, a teaching tool. Oh, I'm glad to. I'm glad to. Nice talking to you. One more thing before you go. I want to thank Nat so much for such an interesting and different conversation for this podcast. I am always fascinated when I find out what people do when they're not just doing their day job, so to speak. What speaks to them? What messages are important for them to get across? What lessons they hope to teach and what differences they hope to make in the world? Who would have thunk? that the same guy who just calls himself a peanuts nerd with great humility would also be determined to and instrumental in reintroducing the Green Book to the world. And so much of what Nat talked about reminds me of so many of the stories I hear about people who have been in cults and highly controlled relationships and family systems where people do want to be able to get the word out about what they're going through or about what the group is really about. And they want to be able to warn people and they want to be able to reach out for help themselves, but in very covert ways have to exercise some of their freedoms and not have to succumb to as many of the restrictions that are set upon them. Just like the idea that Harriet Glickman and Charles Schultz could say, basically, I can't change racism on a grand scale or a political scale, but I can make sure, to the best of my ability, that a character added to a very popular comic strip will not only be affirming and inclusive for anyone who feels other, but could also be revolutionary and will also train people's eyes to see what's been missing. It's 
It's a thought I have quite often. Much of the time, actually according to studies, people who are part of the majority, and in this case, I'll say people who are white, don't necessarily notice when all other faces or characters are also, whatever they are, are also, in this case, white. They don't see what's missing. People of color often do. So it's important to be reminded about what's missing. I also love knowing that during the golden age of comics, during the time of World War II, when people were being decimated by the Nazis, that there were so many comics with scenes where people were fighting and winning against the Nazis and freely speaking out against the Nazis and others and depicting them in drawings, portraying them the way they wanted them to come across, the way they really were to them inside, just as the Nazis and others did to so many others in kind of atrocious political cartoons. It was healing, and it was revolutionary, and it was a symbolic of freedom, and it felt like justice. When people come to me and they say that one of the things they suffer with after having been in a long-term controlled relationship or being born and raised or spending significant time in a cult is that in order for them to be able to move on, they feel like they have to develop a sense of self. Not an easy task. They are not sure who they are. But sometimes the way you know who you are is not based upon how much you were able to follow what you were told. But if you kind of acted out every so often, if you tested the limits, even if you fantasized about doing things you couldn't do in real life, or that you disagreed with something even in your mind, there are many people, again, in very controlled and abusive situations who find these little bits of freedom, and they remind them about who they are and what matters to them and how they really think. And these little bits of freedom that are acted upon are sometimes so covert, they're indistinguishable and undetectable to anyone else. There are women who have talked to me about needing to wear very long clothing for religious reasons and hiding something underneath their clothing, like short shorts or something that would be absolutely forbidden to wear on the outside. Sometimes people find ways of being defiant by sneaking letters to those they're not allowed to be in touch with, to their families on the outside, or sneaking off to send texts back and forth to try to plan their rescue. During one of my first podcast episodes entitled Home Invasion, one of the ways a husband and wife communicated after a man had moved into their home and basically kept them apart from each other and had taken them both hostage was by finding a hidden space in a broken drawer in the kitchen where they could leave notes for each other and find out how the other one was doing and also, finally, make a plan. There are also a lot of people who talk to me about some very powerful ways that people have found freedom. 
There has been some press over the last few years about the Italian composer Francesco Lotoro, who has traveled all over the world to collect music that was written by people imprisoned in concentration camps, from violin concertos to operas, written on whatever could be found to write on, and sometimes also just remaining. And if only, unfortunately, because of the unlikely chance that they were able to survive, then they could transcribe it, which those few have done. And Francesco Lotoro has worked to collect as much of that music as possible to have it played by orchestras now and by children's orchestras in Israel and elsewhere. A woman I know who told me about having been raised on a polygamous compound said she snuck off to go to a library because she and the other women and girls were not allowed to get an education or learn about the world around them. And she remembered overhearing someone outside the compound one day mention that people had something called rights. And she didn't know what rights were, and she didn't know what these rights were. And she nervously asked the librarian about it all. And the librarian offered her a printed copy of the Constitution, which, with help, she poured over and was shocked by and was eventually liberated by. I remember also a quote by Nelson Mandela who said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There are times that we have to remind ourselves what cannot be taken away from us, at least not permanently, most of the time. When we talk about things like the Green Book, of course, the tragic part of it is that it was ever necessary at all, and that travelogues for any people to ensure their safety should be necessary at any time. And just like people who are in cults and who are enslaved in one way or another cannot necessarily change the system or end the system, they can help themselves through it or help other people get around it, just as the Green Book did. And just like comics, where people fought and won their battles against the oppressors and recreated the David and Goliath story over and over in healing and satisfying ways, they couldn't end the war and they couldn't end fascism or racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, homophobia. But they could use their freedom of speech to say what so many people wanted to be able to say and create scenes that so many people wish they could have seen happen in real life or could have participated in in real life. We have the freedom to wish and create hope and create images that are strengthening and satisfying and portray justice and fairness and a reversal of oppressive control. Although, unfortunately, still in some countries, there is not that freedom of expression. So those people need to keep their thoughts and their wishes and their fantasies and their wants and their needs and the portrayals of how they feel it should be and how it could be as kind of a secret in their mind. I hope one day they get to share them. There are people who talk about holding on to their own thoughts to their own likes and dislikes, to their own dreams, even when the people around them are telling them what to think and telling them what to say 
and telling them how to feel and telling them that they have to disclose everything in their mind. Many people just instinctively, even under pressure, share almost everything, but just almost, and still keep at least one thing for themselves that remains unspoken, that's just theirs. And finally, I'm also reminded of an author who my colleague Stephen Hassan likes to quote, the author and aviator whose works were banned by the Vichy regime during World War II, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote many books, most famous of all being The Little Prince. And he writes, I know but one freedom, and that is the freedom of the mind. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.